Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and stand to read God's Word. We're going to read verses 10 through 17. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. We're going to see today the reason why Jesus taught in parables. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can be here in your presence together And Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding of this passage and of your purposes in our lives. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10, Jesus is asked why he spoke to the crowds in parables. Parables are puzzling. They are stories from life designed to speech a teach a spiritual lesson. Parable means to throw one thing by the side of something else to make a comparison, to compare something from daily life to a spiritual truth, earthly stories with heavenly meaning. Now, on the heels of his challenge to seek him and learn from him in verse 9, his disciples, not just the 12, but a a larger group of believers, come and approach Jesus in private and ask him, Basically, why do you speak to them like this? They want to know the reason why that he started to talk like this, um, almost in code, basically, which was uncommon, it was unexpected, and it was unusual. Now, sandwiched between Jesus' parable of the sower and his challenge to come and learn from him in verses 1 through 9, and his private explanation of the parable of the sower to his followers in verses 18 to 23 is the reason that Jesus spoke in parables. We see it here in Matthew 13, 10 through 17. It is this. God reveals and conceals his truth so that believers are blessed and unbelievers get what they want and deserve. God gives and holds back truth because people either acknowledge or reject him. We see that in verses 11 and 12. 
We also see that believers are undeservedly blessed, primarily in verses 16 and 17, and that unbelievers get what they want and deserve. And you see that in verses 13 through 15. Some will say this is not fair. But we do not get to decide what is fair or not in life. I tell my kids that often. We don't get to pick and choose which part of God's word we like or which we don't. And one of the things, by the way, of expositional verse-by-verse preaching is that you can't avoid the tough stuff. And these are some of the toughest things that Jesus ever said. Difficult to understand. And by the way, if you're asking why, it is human to ask God why. It is human to ask Him why about all sorts of things. Why is there evil in the world? Why is life so hard? Why did this happen? Why can't I find freedom from this sin? And in the context of this passage, why is it that some are chosen and others not? Why do some reject Christ and go to hell, and why do others get saved and go to heaven? The context of chapter 13 is salvation truth with which we make sense of the rest of life. And we need to make this distinction. Because often life throws us a curve. Sometimes it seems that believers are not blessed and that unbelievers don't get what they want. And we all know that life is messy. We all know that life is painful and joyful at the same time. And it it isn't all cut and dried. You can't tie everything up in a neat little bow. And everything in life can't necessarily, right away at least, be classified as a blessing. We need to acknowledge that. But truth is truth, and God gives it to us to free us. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to first explore the reason why that Jesus spoke like this, and then we're going to focus on some simple lessons that we can learn. So let's look at the reason why that Jesus spoke in parables. It's in that statement that I gave you. The first part of that is that God reveals and conceals his truth. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says to you he's speaking to the disciples to believers and he says to you it has been granted to you it has been given to know your understanding didn't come from yourself i gave you the ability to know but then he says but to them who's them well the crowds to them it has not been granted to know he's basically saying to the disciples you are blessed, and you're going to be more blessed. In verse 12, he says, if you have, you're going to get more. If you don't have, you're going to, you're going to, that's going to be taken away, whatever you do have. That you are blessed, and you're going to be more blessed. They are not, and they will not. They're going to suffer loss. He's basically saying, you're recipients of salvation, and they reject the only Savior. Now, a popular idea about parables is that Jesus spoke them so that everyone could get the message. No, that's not the point. Jesus very clearly says he used parables to reveal truth to those who would accept the Messiah, him as the Messiah, and conceal it from those who will reject him as Messiah, who will harden their hearts to the truth. That the secrets of the kingdom belong to the disciples and not to others. You see that Jesus is saying this very clearly. And so that the meaning of the parables and really all of God's word is open to the disciples and it's closed to those who close their hearts. And we see in this God displaying his justice as he reveals and conceals. 
Jesus is following his own instructions, by the way. Not to cast pearls before swine, not to give what is holy to dogs. Now, parables, as we know, you can't read one without being challenged. Parables challenge all hearers. And some will seek out the meaning, and others miss it entirely. He veils truth from those with hard hearts, but he exercises mercy and grace, keeping them from the extra guilt of rejecting additional truth. We saw that a bit yet last week. But he reveals and conceals truth. That's the first part of that, that idea. But the second part is that he does that so that believers would be blessed. That believers would be blessed. Blessed by God in his sovereign electing grace. Verse 11 again, he says, To you it has been given, to you it has been granted to know. Jesus here is, is saying a hard thing. He is saying that the secrets of the kingdom, by the way, that's what he said was granted for them to know. The secrets of the kingdom are unknowable apart from God's choice to reveal them. But he has complete authority regarding who will know the Father. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 27. And he has complete discretion to determine who will know the secrets of the kingdom. Now, in those days, there were mystery religions, and so this word in Greek, mysterion, mystery, is, is going to ring some bells with some, but there, was a, there were a lot of secrets that were being passed around in those days, in the ancient east of Jesus' time, like uh, secret societies. You know, they had code words and secrets that only the initiated could know. It was like being in an exclusive club with secret handshakes and members-only privileges. Some of you may be in one of those. The kind of mysteries that Jesus is referring to are the things that God only knows and reveals when he wants to. To know the mysteries, that's what Jesus is saying. It's given to you to know the mysteries. It meant that Jesus, and this signals something important, that Jesus was about to give new revelation through these parables. Now, next week we're going to look at the parable of the sower, and you'll see that there is no new revelation there. But in the other parables in chapter 13, last week I mentioned that the parable of the sower kicks off these parables. It, it jump-starts the parables here of the kingdom. But the other ones are going to, he is going to reveal some new information that hadn't been previously revealed. He's going to be revealing his eternal purposes, which man cannot know, apart from the Spirit of God enlightening him, under, giving him understanding. This is what Jesus is saying. And so mysteries here is referring to things once hidden, but now revealed specifically in the gospel. Great, glorious gospel truths. God's revelation fully known in the gospel. Let's, let's look at a couple of verses that explain this a bit more. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verse 25 says now to him who is able to strengthen you these are the last words of Romans to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God to be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ and then he says amen turn over to Ephesians chapter 3 
Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is speaking of, in verse 3, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, he says. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he goes on to say this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 9, he says, and he is preaching to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. He goes on. In verse 24, Paul again says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, he says in verse 26, hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great, do you notice he chose to make it known, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Which is what? Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ indwelling his people. It says in chapter 2 and verse 2 that he wants each to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ himself is the mystery. Going back to Matthew 13, Jesus says in verse 12 that if you have, you're going to get more. If you already have knowledge given by God and you respond in humble faith and you love the truth, you're going to be entrusted with more of what you prize, more of what you cherish. In verses 16 and 17, we see that God blesses those who believe. He says, blessed are your ears and eyes. It takes us back to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. Remember that this idea of blessing is not an inner feeling. We like to think of it in that way. And I feel good, therefore I must be blessed. But a blessing here is not an inner feeling. It's the idea of being favored by God, therefore eternally secure. It was a beatitude he's now speaking for the disciples, for the believers, in contrast to Pharisees and unbelievers, just like in Matthew 5, that they got to see and hear truths that others weren't privileged to hear. Previous people of faith could only imagine. In fact, one more place. Let's go to one more place regarding this, this mystery and, and how God chose to reveal it. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 Speaking of salvation, written to the elect, verse 1. 10 says this, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time 
the Spirit of Christ in them. Do you notice that? The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that, that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Jesus is alerting them in Matthew 13 to this privileged position that they have been granted by, by no means of their own, but solely by the grace of God. The disciples were blessed above the Old Testament prophets and other believers who were righteous by faith who only got glimpses of the new kingdom. There's a third part of this reason that Jesus told parables. Maybe one of the hardest ones for us. It's this, that unbelie- we see this, that unbelievers get what they want. They get what they deserve. Maybe you could say it that they get what they think they want. But whatever the case, it sounds kind of strange, doesn't it, that the, that the unbelievers would get their way. But that's actually what happens. And we like to say, well, hey, God doesn't give you what you want. God gives you what you need. Right? But here, what they desire is what they get. Now, chap- now verse 11, that, those words not given, gave the reason in terms of God's electing grace, his sole uh, uh, discretion to do that. But verse 13 gives the human reason. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They're condemned by their willful rejection of the only Savior, the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. So verse 12 comes true for them. What they have will be taken away. They're not going to have any uh, standing because they didn't value Jesus. They didn't value what Jesus was giving. They, They considered... Get this, they considered the most valuable treasure as worthless. Kind of like if someone gave you a 500-pound chunk of pure, solid gold, and you insisted that it was just a rock, that it was just painted over with, with gold paint, and so you just left it out and told someone, anyone, they could just take it. It's like leaving something outside to, to rust or to rot, you know? If you don't value something, you're going to leave it out in the rain or in the elements. You value it, you'll bring it inside. Keep it for safekeeping. And what is taken away is their presumed standing as members of the kingdom. This is to people who thought they were in. But they will have no place. And when you get to verses 14 and 15... You see right away that it's a quote from Isaiah because Jesus says, in this case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. So we don't just have God's sovereign choice, but we have fulfilled prophecy here as well. And what is that prophecy? In Isaiah, the prophecy that God had given Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 6, you might be reminded that there was a heavenly vision, that he saw the Lord high and exalted, that there was a revelation from God. This was after the heavenly vision, after the worship, and after the commission where he says, go. Then came the heavy lifting 
of going to speak to a people. This wasn't, by the way, like job number one. This wasn't like, hey, this is a cush uh, assignment from God. They're, you're going to go and they're going to be like, oh, thanks for telling us. No, he says, you're going to go and these words, <laughs> they're going to hear, but not hear. They're going to see, but not see. They're going to think they understand, but they won't. Wow. What a job, huh? Isaiah's message was God's tool back then to hide the truth from those who would reject it from an unbelieving generation. And Jesus' parables did the same thing. That's why he's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. There's a word in Isaiah 6, 10. And you see it here. Verse 15. Their eyes they have closed. Some Bible versions say their eyes have grown, they are dim. Their eyes are dim. It literally means something that's very interesting and very painful. It, it basically literally means that their eyes are smeared over. Back in those days, uh, there, it was an old school punishment, but eyes would be smeared over with wax. Sealing the eyes, an old school punishment, uh, basically blinding you. Done by someone else to you. And there's a word in here that's key. It's also in verse 15. It's the word lest. Lest. Uh, literally, if perhaps. And a lot of people want to read that and go, that God somehow was being punitive and he was saying, I'm not going to let them know because I don't want them to get saved. No. God desires them to be saved, but they're going to reject. So the lest is a very key word here. Their eyes have grown dim. Their ears have basically been smeared over with wax. It's judgment. God was not, if perhaps, it's not going to happen. They're never going to hear. They're never going to understand. Jesus was not going to give further clear revelation to the crowds at that point. He was not going to cast his pearls before swine. It was a merciful act of justice, of judgment. They got what they wanted. They got their will. The judgment on those who rejected Jesus began with Jesus' uh, withholding of insight by parables. He was giving them no help as long as they stayed in rebellion. God is patient. Further on in this chapter, we're going to see the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And, and, and God lets them both grow up until the harvest. Just mingle in. So what can we learn from these verses? There's a lot of, uh, you know, heavy truths here. But what can we learn? Let me give you three things. Number one. Number one. Each person is foolish apart from God. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 speaks of people who are, who are foolish and you know what that's us before we know Christ we are so lost without Jesus Psalm 14 verse 1 and, and Psalm 53 verse 1 both say the fool says in his heart there is no God the Hebrew word for fool is Nabal and it doesn't mean that they're stupid it doesn't mean that they have a lack of intellect it refers to a person who makes a moral choice 
to reject God. It doesn't mean you're stupid if you don't believe in God. It means you are immoral if you don't believe. It always is a moral reason that a person rejects God. Always. Someone may tell you it's an intellectual reason. It's not. It's a moral reason. Always. In verse 13, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, Because seeing they see not. Think about that. That generation, the light shone on them as light has never shone before. And they closed their eyes. They had Jesus right there in front of them. They shut their eyes. They closed up their ears. They did not understand. Jesus spoke, and many people said it, he speaks as no man has ever spoken. They wouldn't listen. They took nothing in. Didn't get the heart-piercing, life-giving truth of sp- that was spoken to them. It, it's an ongoing condition that leads to ruin. Everyone is going to pick some God around which to build their life. And when a person rejects the one true God, if God is not the center, something will be, uh, might be a person, might be a thing, and it's going to lead to a, cr- a crash and burn somewhere down the line. It never leads to a good place. It may lead to short-term prosperity and success, but it will never lead to a place of soul rest. Ever. The calm is false and momentary. The emptiness in a person's soul will continue to gnaw at them and remain unless they bow at the feet of Jesus. The fool says there is no God. Jesus is God. All who reject Jesus are morally unwise. I was, and if you're a believer, so were you before you did. Jesus is the wisdom of God that everyone most needs. That all people are accountable to God. So that's the first thing, is that all people are just, that we acknowledge that all people are foolish without God, apart from God. The second thing, though, and this is where it gets sticky, this is where it gets, uh, you know, kind of down to the nitty-gritty, all choices have confidence, has consequences with God. All choices have consequences that come from God. And from those choices. Verses 12 and 13. If you have more is going to be given. If you don't, you're not going to get, it's going to be even taken away from you. We're either going to accept the truth and get more, or suppress the truth and have it suppressed from us. There are several kinds of truth suppression that happen in Scripture. The first is in Romans 1, which we all, uh, most of us have read that, in Romans 1, where it speaks of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's, um, Romans 1, and you can start at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His his invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. It's always a moral exchange. Always. But Matthew 13 displays God's righteousness in suppressing truth. 
truth hidden to the arrogant and revealed to the wise. And it's totally consistent with who God is. That God is at the same time always perfectly just and loving and holy and righteous and gracious and merciful. And every other attribute of his. All his attributes work perfectly together in, in harmony. And God saving some demonstrates his righteousness. He is just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. But unless a person yields to, to Christ on earth, they will one day bow before him knowing that they should have believed. It will be regretful and agonizing, uh, and they will be aware of the error and blindness that, that led to their alienation. And yes, a person can become hardened to the point of no return here on earth while still alive. So the... the the idea is to admit our sin while alive on earth or suffer the consequences forever in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. John Piper said this. He said, no one who understands wants hell. So you have to, you have to um, conclude that those who, want, who, want, who don't want God don't understand. That yes, uh, no one who understands wants hell. But those who do not understand do not realize that the autonomy from God which they crave is going to lead them there. The stones saying you can't always get what you want. It's a fact of life I'm always teaching my kids as well. Uh, when I was a kid I really wanted a pocket knife and to live on a ranch with horses. I understand that you don't always get what you want. I did get that pocket knife at some point down the line. I'm still waiting for the ranch with horses. But in the arena of eternal life, in God's salvation economy, we get exactly what we want. We either want eternal life with God or not, and that's what we'll get. We're never in control from birth to the point of death. You're, but regarding salvation, you're going to get what you want. You're either under God Almighty or you're under Satan. Uh, you're going to play for one of two teams. There's no third option. And... Ultimately, the gospel wins, Jesus reigns, God rules, and everything else that's good like that. The final outcome's assured. We know the end of the story. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you need to make a choice and decide. What if you say, well, I'm already a believer. I already did that. Well, good. You need to keep wanting Jesus in your life. I don't know too many people who say, well, I'm not a believer anymore. Oh, really? Well, then you weren't to begin with. Or you're deceived and you'll come back and say, I was wrong. Yes, I was. And I was wandering and sinning and going against God, but God brought me to my senses. Something, either one of those, will be the case. See, believers get burned by the deceptiveness of sin all the time. And we, we, even those who have Christ, prop themselves up with all sorts of worthless things we we reach for fool's gold and then when we come to our senses we go i was a fool sin blinds us to reality but god's kindness leads us to repentance isn't that great god's kindness leads us to repentance and so that as we confess our sins and turn from it god clears our vision refocuses us on what is true by his spirit he leads us there Interesting thing. In Christ, we are freed from the power and penalty of sin. Praise God. But we are not free yet from its presence. 
One day in heaven we will be free from sin's presence. But until then we are burdened and sometimes seemingly bent on sinning. Those of us who are free in Christ from the power and penalty of sin are sometimes bent on sinning. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. But many of its effects and consequences are still present. Misery is not yet abolished for believers. We live redeemed by Christ's blood in a fallen world. And we are sometimes contributors to the common bad. But we are blessed in Christ, saved by grace through faith. And our position and our persevering in Christ depends on Jesus, not us, or else we would be in big trouble. Big, big trouble. But all choices have consequences from God. Last thing. Last thing. Every good thing that we have is undeserved when it comes from God. Everything. Every good thing we have is undeserved and comes from God. God is the sovereign creator and absolute sovereign of the universe. Nothing exists or occurs without his provision or permission. And so that God reveals and conceals his truth so that believers are blessed and unbelievers get what they want and deserve highlights these two complementary realities seen in Scripture. God's sovereign electing grace, blessing the undeserving with salvation, and our accountability to God giving what unbelief deserves, letting the consequences of rejecting Christ play out. I like the way that D.A. Carson puts it. On one hand, we have the decreed will of God and full, uh, fulfilled prophecy right here in this passage in Matthew. And on the other, tragic rebellion, spiritual dullness, chronic unbelief. It puts responsibility for rejecting Jesus squarely on the shoulders of those who reject him while guaranteeing none of what is taking place is outside of God's control and plan. See, no one who rejects Christ can blame God. And no one who is saved can take credit. And verse 12 reminds us that we should not take God's blessings for granted. It ought to increase our gratitude for what we enjoy in Christ. The reason Jesus used parables was not so everyone could easily understand, but that some would get it. He has purpose to save some, not all. By grace, undeservedly, believers are blessed by God. So verse 11, when Jesus says, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, which we see clearly is Christ himself, our hope of glory. And to them it hasn't been given you don't know who's them you don't know who you and them are often that ought, verse 11 ought to lead us to preach the gospel to everyone God knows his pl- ways and plans we don't he has mercy on whomever he wills he reveals and conceals his truth to fulfill God's predetermined plan as you see in verse 11 but we also see in scripture that no one understands and no one seeks for God We're lost and dead in sin without Christ. That no one will or can choose Jesus unless God intervenes and breaks through their heart and heart and regenerates their soul. 
And only then can a person respond with the faith that eludes them. We don't create faith. God gives it as a gift. We, we receive it as an undeserved gift from God. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is behind every positive move we make toward him. Tozier described God's prevenient grace as God always being previous. Before we think a right thought about God, God had to put that uh, uh, desire for that thought in us. Last two verses, Jesus says, blessed are your eyes and ears. Why, Why are they happy? Because they're working properly because he gave them the ability to work and he gave them life. And so many have yearned to see what you see. You're amazingly blessed. You know that it's been given to all who are in Christ to know the things freely given to them by God? That if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have all the riches of God in Christ. Every one of them is yours. Therefore, you ought to find your identity solely in Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in you we live and move and exist that you richly supply us with all things to enjoy, that your work is perfect, that all your ways are just, that you are a God of faithfulness without injustice, that you are righteous and upright, that you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. We thank you that in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. We thank you that from him, from you, and through you, and to you are all things. But Lord, we acknowledge that we have rebelled and and have not honored you. We have sinned, thinking ourselves wise. We have foolishly exalted ourselves above you. Thank you, Lord, that you have said that you, but you have been rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us. And those of us in Christ have been made alive together with Christ. That while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to you. We thank you, Lord, that you, while, that you demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you have intervened and initiated and engaged and, and we know the reason why. So, Lord, how can we not be moved to love you and to love others and to love those who do not believe? Lord, lead us, guide us. In Christ's name, amen.